Hey, Vlado. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Hi, Shane. Nice to seeing you again, and thanks for having me back. Again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our second piece of the conversation. And today, you know, we're going to be discussing a lot of interesting topics. Uh, we're going to take a look at Jung's perspective on depression and anxiety and how a Jungian analyst like yourself might go about treating some of these kinds of conditions and uh, situations in an, an analytical therapy process. And so it should be a lot of fun. Um, so maybe let's get started with just a little bit of a, an intro on how does Jungian analysis or therapy based on Carl Jung's works differ from other kinds of therapies, would you say? So I'd say there are a lot of different therapies out there. Um, there are therapies that are um, that could be rational emotive therapy. There are uh, psychodynamic therapies. There are psychoanalytic therapies. So nowadays we have a lot of different branches of therapy. So it's really um, hard to say how Jungian therapy is distinguished uh, or different from any other therapies, but I can, um, if I generalize it, what uh, Jungian therapy is based on, I would say one thing, it's, a, it's supposed to foster a process of individuation. A process of individuation is a process of becoming oneself. According mm -hmm. to Jung, or according to what you know, what we believe or we uh, we follow, is that um, we are born as a, as an ego, and that ego is slowly emerging. So it's if you kind of imagine it maybe like a like an iceberg mm -hmm. so we are born largely unconscious and there is a seed of the self within all of us and as the ego is emerging that means as ego is becoming conscious of its of itself or that when the ego is coming becoming conscious of the self then we become more co conscious beings mm -hmm. so the self is being born through us if you if you put it uh, sort of a very simply so the process of individuation is a process of slow integration of the self and that process is um there is not like one prescription of it individuation happens all the time and hopefully we as an uh, analyst help our clients to become conscious so when somebody asks me what is my role, how this therapy is going to look like, I say, I am hopefully going to be a mirror for you so I can help you to witness yourself and get to know yourself better. Mm -hmm. So the question of knowing thyself, meaning knowing your own unconscious, what am I unconscious of? Mm -hmm. And how is that unconscious? inhibiting me from adapting and living in the world how is that unconscious somehow gripping me so how do i untangle that how do i become first conscious of my unconscious and being aware actually that those parts that live in me can be actually um enemies of mine or they mm. can be seducing me or they can cause all kinds of issues within me that you know we can call this is the neurotic 
problem the client comes to therapy with and we help the client to to understand to integrate to be able to develop new attitude uh, mm-hmm. in, in all the terms so, so there's a lot yeah. Basically, if I'm understanding you correctly, right, is that as humans, there are, there's an unconscious level and a conscious level. Now, most of our lives we spend operating at the conscious level because that's what we're conscious of <laughs> by definition. But there's this whole realm, right, that sub-base of the iceberg that is the unconscious, which is still a part of, an essential part of who we are, but that we're not actively aware of. And this unconscious exerts power over us and influence in a variety of different ways and might, you know, gear us in a positive direction, sometimes a negative direction, have all kinds of impact on our lives. And when we run into troubles in life, a lot of the times what we need to do is to be able to really look into our unconscious to see what is it that's driving me? What are these attitudes that I have that's causing me? to have these problems in my conscious awareness. And in the process of Jungian analysis, at least in part, is for the analyst to hold up a mirror, so to speak, as you say, to reflect back to the client exactly what's going on so that together you can take a journey down to figure out what are the unconscious processes that are going on here, bring them to conscious awareness so that they can be reevaluated and potentially at least understood and potentially changed. Right. Yeah, you summed it up very, uh, very well. I think um, the, the one difference is I'm not really sure if we are lar- largely conscious. Mm. Um, we may be actually largely unconscious. We are, you know, born as very unconscious. Yeah. And, you know, we may be born as in, in this unconscious wholeness. You know, we are, we are very instinctive and we sort of live in the world as, as children. But then we do not understand who we are. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes clients come in and they don't understand what they're doing. Like, how am I causing the conflict in my marriage? Mm. Well, let's talk about it. Let's see what's happening. What are the energies? What are the behaviors? What are the thoughts? What are the uh, what, what is actually happening in your life that is causing you to have a conflict with your wife or to to have a depression or to have an, an anxiety so we actually do not know ourselves and the process of individuation is to get to know ourselves mm-hmm. and to understand how those complexes archetypes and those strong powers within ourselves that maybe greeks would call gods how do they affect our lives right and yeah, I think it, it makes sense that we're mostly unconscious, right? As much as we don't like to think so. But so maybe a little point of clarification is, um, I'm not quite sure how you differentiate the ego from the self. Versus, and, and also maybe a, a third concept to, to introduce is like the persona, right? So w- what are the, th- the differences between those things? Well, so uh, we can think of ego as something that we think of ourselves that we are that we know about ourselves. So you identify yourself with your name, with, you know, you you look in the mirror and you see, oh, this is Shane. So this is something that you know about yourself, right? Like you identify yourself with your body, with your appearance, with you, if I ask you, 
where were you born or what are you doing? So you have a conscious awareness of relatively, of, you're relatively conscious about yourself, about your history, about, uh, about what you do, what you like, what you don't like, etc. So if, if you think of ego, ego is, a, is sort of a center of the conscious personality. Mm-hmm. So that is what we know who we are, or we think that what we know who we are. And the self is the unconscious ego. So it's the greater intelligence that lived with, within ourselves. And that also is the ego is embraced by it. So we are actually within the self. If you, if you think mm-hmm. of it as sort of like in an ocean. So we, uh, the self is everywhere around us and within us. And then by getting to know ourselves, we are enlarging the the consciousness. We are actually extending um, the, the borders of the ego and we're making those borders between the self and ego more permeable. So mm-hmm. we have a better understanding. This is what is happening within me. Is this me or this is not me? It is also me, as you right. said. It is that that I know, but also that I don't know. And within the self, it, I mean, this is going very deep, kind of in a in a philosophical uh, question, which I would yeah. rather not to get too confusing about. But like the self is everything; is the world. It's it's as, as Jung said, it starts from the uh, from the psyche and it goes all the way down to the body, on all the way down to the atom, all the way to this immat to the material and immaterial world. Mm. So, so the self if, is if the totality of everything. Exactly. It's totality of everything. Jung would say it's totality of psyche and, and psyche is basically everything. Yeah. But if you sort of think of it from this therapy perspective, I mean, so something that is more understandable for the sake of, uh, you know, so people understand how the therapy works. So what are certain energies within me that I'm not aware of and how those energies affect me? Mm-hmm. And my task is to develop relationship with them. That is to say, the ego being aware that they exist and how do they affect me and how do they change me? So mm-hmm. by understanding and by integrating those parts, I am becoming more whole person, ideally. So right. it's, uh, it's it, you can kind of think like the the darkness is, is is dissipating and I see more light. So I can see what's more in a distance. I mm-hmm. can see what's coming. I can see where I'm going. I can see more where I'm coming from. Right. So and I, I like the idea of, yeah. And I, I like the idea of, I like two ideas there that I, I really like. I like the idea of having a relationship with these energies, right? We're understanding that to a large degree, they're not within our control. So the best we can do is relate to them consciously so that we know how they're impacting us and influencing us instead of having it done unconsciously and then just being totally at a loss about what's going on. But at the same time, you can't exactly control them. So it's better to understand and relate to them rather than, well, one, accept them as like your problem, right? Perhaps they're your responsibility but not necessarily 
your fault, right? That these energies exist and you can relate to them. And then the second idea that I think is a really good analogy is the the darkness and the light of where, you know, the unconscious represented as darkness being much more all-consuming and then the light illuminates certain areas and as it grows, right, so as our consciousness, as our conscious expands from the unconscious, that's when you can see more things, things get illuminated. As you say, you can see the way, you can see how things are working really. It's not just shrouded in darkness and it also becomes much more manageable because in order to deal with the problem, you first need to know the problem, right? You need to be able to see it. And so it would be impossible like punching in the dark, trying to solve a problem that you don't even know what the problem is. <laughs> uh, yeah, a crazy yeah. exercise. That's exactly right. I mean, typically when people come to therapy, and I apologize, I'm going to lift this one a little bit higher because I'm looking down. No worries, go for it. Maybe one book less. There we go. So I don't want to just look completely down when my camera is too high. Yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. Okay. <clears throat> so I, so before I answer what you said, I just get, kind of came to me when you were talking about these two ideas uh, uh, that you found interesting. So Jung said there are three, three kind of basic goals of, uh, of Jungian analysis. One is increasing the strength of the ego, meaning ego being not so susceptible to all kinds of unconscious influences. Mm -hmm. And when we call, when we say unconscious, I mean, you can imagine sort of an energies could be an, uh, strong emotions that sort of shake us and, and that we become uh, sort of stronger, more flexible in dealing with the unconscious. Second would be like diminishing the influence of the unconscious, which is again, come with this idea of relationship. So the unconscious is not so um, so strong for us that mm. we can, let's say, an alcoholic develops uh, a good ability to resist the urges because the the idea of alcohol is not going to be so strong. Mm. Idea of uh, getting high, it's not so appealing anymore because the unconscious force is sort of it it, it loosens. And the third one, he says, is a change of personality. So as you do that, you hopefully develop a new personality that has a new perspective. Yeah, interesting. So it, it's like loosening its grip, so to speak, of the unconscious, right? Where, because the strengthening of the ego and the diminishment of the impact of the unconscious, meaning that, like, as you say, for an addiction, where it's not so compulsive anymore, right? Although it might still be there, so you still might have the urges or the compulsion to, uh, you know, drink or smoke or do whatever it is, it's not as strong or a counterpoint would be you're strong enough to resist it, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, and it, maybe it's both. And and so, and, and then the evolution of the personality, what how, what exactly does that mean? So, so when you, the personality change with, I mean, they're all interconnected, right? Sure. So if, 
I have the urge to drink, for example, and I go to I go through analysis and a successful analysis, I symbolically understand what the urge is about. Mm. And it may not be about drinking. Maybe there was something really unconscious that was gripping me and forcing me to go and drink and use drugs or uh, indulge in any other sort of compulsive behaviors. Rather than understanding this is the life force that is forcing me to live in the world, mm. to be to be more interested in in my marriage or in 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 reading and in, in things that are enjoyable. So what actually happens is this I look at is more symbolically. So that that urge is no longer an urge. It is more like a purpose. Mm. So it, 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 you you make those to be more in service of you rather than you become a victim. Right. Like a sage sitting on a bull on an ox that is uh, and the ox is bringing the sage to the place where he wants to go mm. rather than being distracted. And then having the ox take you wherever it wants to go. Yes. Right. So you become the driver. So when so when working with addiction, right, what's the approach to understanding? Is, is it to get an understanding of why this person has this particular addiction or compulsion, not specific to the substance, but specific to the effect that it gives or has on the person, right? The numbing effect or the distraction or the dissociation or the high that's different from their normal life, right? It, it's mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. counter to the suffering of their existence. And so how do you work with that to figure out, to like loosen that grip? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you use the, uh, use the word dissociation. That means splitting or meaning like rejecting something. Or, and that's oftentimes what uh, happens, why people uh, fall for addiction because the addiction is in service of their own dissociation. It's a process when one chooses to numb the, the, the function of feeling what's actually happening in the body or in one's life. And it's a form of escape. Mm -hmm. There's nothing new for you know, people to know that, right? So we are looking, what are you replacing by drinking or by using drugs what 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 does it serve for you what is the reason behind that and once you understand that i mean the you know the treatment of addiction is uh, it it's it's no different than any other treatment except you really have to address the the drug first mm -hmm. because it's so easy to hindrance the whole process the one can trip over and over for the same or the same drug. When one is in the recovery process, one can make a really good progress, but then falls back into the into the well of, uh, of addiction. Mm -hmm. So really, you find out what can you replace your addiction with. So uh, you know, Jung said something when he wrote a letter to Bill Wilson, the founder of AA. He said something to the point that spiritus contra spiritum means alcohol against the spirit. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like there is the spiritum, spiritus in a bottle. Mm 
the alcohol. You take it out and you put spiritum bag, which is the spirit, which is the spirituality. What is actually behind addiction is a spiritual need mm-hmm. to grow, to understand, etc. But that you cannot bypass it. You have to go through painful experiences, through that that you're trying to split off, that what you're trying to reject. You actually have to start doing the work on your recovery and face those and mm. be in relationship with them, be in in the process of really hard work. Yeah. It never it's never done easy. It's never done well. This is just something you just stop drinking and you and, and then you and then you'll be healed. Well, you stop drinking and then your unconscious comes to you and visits you in form of anxiety, depression, anger, etc. Now right. you have those right. emotions that you have to deal with and if you're no longer drinking them away, now the process begins. Mm-hmm. And isn't it interesting how, you know, you were speaking about the spirit that people are searching for in the bottle, how liquor is sometimes called spirits, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just like those kinds of connections where it's literally an explanation of like you're drinking spirit, you're, you're trying to achieve that in a, a non-healthy way, right? You're, you're looking for that spiritual connection and that's a fundamental part of the 12-step program right is reconnecting and having a spiritual transformation as a result of being in recovery and confronting all of these things that are in your way and and dealing with whatever your unconscious throws your way and building the tools to be able to manage that right because i think a lot of the time people who struggle with addictions right they like there's this really interesting what I, what I struggle to understand is how the concept of addiction is in the during the addiction phase, right? There is the sense of like a person with an addiction can't control their addiction, right? It is the number one priority in their life and it takes precedence over everything else. And they're not really in control over any of that. And then something happens and all of a sudden they can make a choice that's different but i don't Mm -hmm. know exactly what happens at that point where something changes i know that it happens it happens all the time and there's Mm -hmm. millions of cases to to demonstrate that but do you have an understanding of what the psychological (laughs) switch is that happens at that point uh, well, we only kind of make the kind of theoretical models about like who really knows what happens, sure. right? But uh, uh, the the first step of, of A is like we admit that we are powerless. Yeah. Alcohol, right. So if you look at it from the Jungian way, which you know the Wilson was a friend of Jung, so he says we admit our ego is powerless to the powers of the self. So what ego does? Ego humbles itself. Ego says. I am going to try to lower my defenses and let life happen. Mm-hmm. And not the way that I'm going to start drinking and follow those urges, but I'm going to let the greater supportive and scary, perhaps, energies to enter and see where they take me. 
And it's a process of, I, I mean, it's, I, I think it's a religious process, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's this kind of a submitting to the higher power and saying, you know, like, God, please restore me to sanity. Or when uh, when there was this Eleusian mysteries in, in Greece, right? Like people would go and they would strip naked and they would say, okay, here I am. Let the process happen. It's It's almost like a ritual when you willingly make yourself vulnerable and say, I'm no longer afraid, or maybe I'm afraid, but I'm willing to take that risk. Mm-hmm. And whatever happens, I'm, I'm here for it. So you, you submit to the, to the ritual. You, um, you, you, I guess, you, you commit what the Jungians sometimes call the ego side. It's not a suicide, like you don't kill your body and yourself, but you kill your ego. And that is, of course, that is a process. Mm-hmm. But you let that defensive system, or you let all of that is connected to the defensive system, which is the easy way in drinking and so on, you let it die. Mm-hmm. And you let other forces of your psyche, the healing, you can kind of look at it as a maybe in the immune system of psyche enter in and help you to heal that. Right. And it's a if painful means- process because even if you think about like when you get a disease, like the healing process, you know, your immune system inflames your body. Like that's how it, that's how it processes and gets rid of various diseases is it gets worse before it gets better (laughs) exactly and there are autoimmune problems right and sometimes the immune system can attack the body and that's what Donald culture say that um our defenses in like in our psychic system there are defenses that that are archetypal and they can be they can have a dual nature they can on one hand protect from further re-traumatization from going back to the trauma. But on another hand, it holds us stuck Mm. in something which is not really fully living. It's something only provisional. It's something fake. It is a a neurotic self or fake self that is developed. And those archetypal defenses provide certain suiting and feeling like, okay, this is about relatively good way of life but they also do not allow us to move and individuate further. Mm. It's that there is a difference between fantasy and imagination. Fantasy is that what keeps the affect really split, keeps the real pain away from our experiencing it. So that our feelings are not actually fully authentically experienced. So we have this fantasy, we have this idea of something provisional versus imagination is something how do we imagine that we go back to life and being able to authentically suffer our pain our trauma our grief etc and so do we can we consciously use both fantasy and imagination i i don't know to, to what extent uh, fantasy is conscious i think maybe we think it's conscious but it's something that rather happens to us mm. and we become um, sort of friend with it like a dream and it, well yes and no um, dream is very uh, dream could be autonomous and dream can be very um, 
the, the dream can come from the both sides. Mm-hmm. It can come from the uh, from the source of the fantasy and sort of keeping us stuck. It could be the traumatic dream. There's sometimes the people with post-traumatic stress disorder, they have these repetitive dreams. They have dreams that uh, they're sort of stiff and there is not energy and there is not a lot of affect and nothing's much is happening except there is just the, like overwhelming fear, for example, that mm-hmm. people wake up and it's a nightmare. Or there are some dreams that that we can relate to in a more nuanced way. And then we can see, oh, these are the feelings and that we can go deeper and deeper to that dream and start exploring what is the, where is it leading us? What is the imaginative aspect of this dream? What is that dream is actually trying to tell us on a more symbolic level? We can work with any dream, but mm-hmm. it takes really let me focus and maybe you can delete this thing. So I think your boys are not happy about it either. So mm, sorry, the dogs my dogs are having a party. Uh someone no, 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 okay. someone rang the that's, that's good because I <laughs> I need to uh, think about how I'm gonna uh, talk about this because they're rather jumping in the really um deeper territory. Sorry, I'm back. Someone rang the door to deliver something and the dogs were like, oh, it's party time. Who's here? Um, so, yeah, so we were saying dreams and fantasy. So fantasy is something that happens as a protection against further re-traumatization mm-hmm. to ourselves. So we escape into fantasy. We develop it as a as a protection to feel. And ideally, what, what trauma does to us, trauma takes away our ability to feel in a broader, more richer and greater sense. Okay. Negative or positive meaning feeling consciously. A lot of people with trauma or people with depression, <clears throat> they cannot feel. They don't know what they feel. If I ask my clients, so what do you feel towards your children? I know they're there. They annoy me sometimes. But what else? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. That my Sometimes they're hungry. I, I mean, I don't know what you mean by that, right? So... Being able to experience feeling in a full, full sense that is actually being able to, to live reality of life. Mm. Because robots don't have any feelings. They, they can function, they can be intelligent, they can you know, communicate. But if there is no feeling, that dimension of what actually makes us human is missing. And that's right. what trauma does. Trauma kind of cuts that off. And the fantasy provides a certain relative way of existing, but not really in a deeper sense, mm-hmm. in, in a deeper ability to, to feel. Right. It's like a secondary or quasi experience, right? In terms of it's not the true feeling, it's, it's a fantasy version. 
of it. Yeah, well, so if you go back to to, to an alcoholic, right? Like yeah. an alcoholic can have a fantasy. Oh, I'm just going to um, go to bar and I'm going to drink, and that drink in itself gives me a certain feeling of uh, I'm connected with my friends, and I feel like I'm I'm really smart. I'm a certain center of attention. And I'm living the life, right? Like I'm there and I'm experiencing something really awesome, mm-hmm. right? So that the whole alcoholic experience gives a fantasy of I'm the hero of my life, right? Right. But yet that's not really what his potential is. He can or she can be really a person who can work on, on, on a greater relationship, not just meeting somebody in a bar and talking to uh, his friend who is there every day with him yeah right it's giving more relationships so living and imagining how can one lives in life and uh, and and develop fuller life and fuller ability to feel is the goal and that's the process of individuation right being able to feel and to know what's happening within ourselves hmm. now sorry the dogs again <laughs> it's at the door that's okay I have two dogs and they each have a chair right next to me. Um, (laughs) They're sitting in their spots now. One needs to be picked up because he's old, but um, whenever the door rings and they interrupt but okay so just to get back That's on good. track i like the, the dogs being here because dogs are kind of a you know expression of really an instinctual yeah. instinctual life right like so they they cannot make a decision mm-hmm. in in a way like they cannot impose like when you when you ask the, the difference between the ego and the self right so they're all self without without any ego so there is like the consciousness i mean the there is some level of consciousness sure. uh, and dogs, I mean, they experience something, they have a, you know, they can love, they can be angry, etc. But the ability to make a willful conscious decision to become vegetarian, for example, <laughs> I guess it's, it's, it's not, it's not there. Yeah. And also they don't have the moral sense, right? Which requires that sort of higher order thinking in terms of, they don't have a set of values as such. They really operate as just pure instinct, um, conscious but instinctually driven. Uh, and yet they mm-hmm. seemingly have emotional experiences as well, right? Mm-hmm. They can be afraid. They can be happy. They can, you know, express affection. Um, all, all very sort of primal instinctual things that people also experience but also a lot more mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah and, and, and the, the morality um understood maybe the kantian way or the jungian way it's an ability to make a choice based on all the other forces that exist there but making a conscious choice with respect to some kind of a higher imperative or some higher understanding yeah and um, hopefully people who individuate they make choices that are uh loving and kind 
versus destructive and negative. Yeah, no, it's true. And uh, I don't know, I like to loosely think of my dogs as Zen masters uh, because they sort of perfectly embody that state of Zen of just being in the present moment and just living life one moment at a time. I mean, it's not their full existence, but it's most of it. And I think it's part of the reason why I like having dogs is to just have that energy around me of just, you know, calmness and relaxed and peaceful most of the time. And then the doorbell rings and chaos breaks loose. <laughs> so just, just to take a little bit of a step to the side, um, in terms of depression, right? So what's a Jungian understanding of depression? So Jungians don't look at depression as a, as a pathology necessarily. Jungians look at depression as a process needed to mm-hmm. recover something that we are not conscious of. So there is a certain teleology to it. There is a certain purpose. So one becomes depressed in order to find a new way. So mm-hmm. to find a new way, one has to sink into underworld or one has to disintegrate or deintegrate, one has to break apart, one has to lose the sense of who one is. And then in that struggle, in the process of being depressed, hopefully if one goes to um, to analysis and you know the analyst help the person to understand and to see what's there, what's in the darkness, from that one can emerge as a new personality. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it's kind of like a symbolic death in a way, right? So it's a suffering, death, and resurrection. So we understand um, depression as a, as a needed process. Uh, Jung uh, talked about a bi-cement mental as a, as a lower level of consciousness, like that conscious life becomes more quiet and then more unconscious life becomes awakened. Mm-hmm. So, and one sort of sink into the darkness to see what's there. And being able to sit there long enough yeah. and start relating to it and start pulling out those painful feelings, those that may be covered first by, um, by, by body, by some of it, but not one not being able to see what's there. And once the, those are awakened and become more conscious, then depression is changing and it becomes a process rather than just sort of an aimless suffering. Right. So instead of it being viewed as a disorder, it's viewed as a necessary agent of change in the sense that there is something wrong with the way that, you know, you are living and you need a change as a person in order to move forwards. And that process of change requires the descent into the darkness, which is a is experienced, can be experienced as what we think of as depression symptoms, right? So it's that low affect, that um, lack of motivation, all these things. And it makes sense to me that because it's a change of personality, you know, it's a process of changing. It's like, well, all of those things that stimulated the person before the depression, let's say, no longer matter, 
right? So you're no longer motivated by the things that used to motivate you. You no longer get pleasure from the things that gave you pleasure once before. And so you have to relinquish all of those things. And yet that process is terribly painful because you're, that person as such is dying, right? Mm -hmm. And to move through that is to then, as you say, to, to suffer, to die, and then to resurrect as a new right and then you become a new version of yourself not really a new person but like a newer version of yourself where you have new interests and new motivations and new desires and a renewed energy for life and for you know doing things and being in the world and then that's the sort of resolution of depression but it's a long road right and it's very easy to get stuck on that road and find unhelpful temporary solutions yeah yeah you, you, yeah you said very eloquently i i i kind of view it as a you when you when you're depressed you go there and it feels like there is like nothing there right like there's just darkness it's swallowed it and it's very painful and there is nothing what's the what's the purpose of it but that's where you start mm. and when you start um sort of paying more attention and going back to dreams, you you say you have a dream that something happened in the dream and you start looking at it and what is an emotion that I can make more conscious? What is, what I can I translate in more in the feeling that I start working in my life to learn more about myself and to develop perhaps a new attitude? I'm opening, um, I'm it's it's like I'm making a little openings for the energies that are healing mm. within myself to enter so I can grow. So it's it's almost like you are observing and helping to break the defenses that keeps you stuck in being depressed. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the process of self-analysis I don't mean like doing analysis on yourself, but just like looking at yourself and seeing, you know, what is exactly is going on and what's keeping me stuck. How can I move forward by opening the space to allow for a new energy, maybe a healing energy, if you want to think of it that way, to come through and rejuvenate and renew me into a newer, better version, more individuated, perhaps. Absolutely. And that goes through, and that's sort of a core of Jungian analysis, that goes through actually feeling what's happening within yourself. Yeah. Because depression, it, you can kind of look at it, it's, it the, the feeling is lacking, there is an ability to feel. It's just mm -hmm. so overwhelming and dark that one had no ability to feel. So if you help the client to, to feel and to experience pain more consciously and transmute it into something more tolerable and meaningful then you're talking about really enlargement of the personality mm. and it's it really boils down to being able to experience that which was split off rejected etc because it was so painful right and very often people need help with that because it's too painful otherwise they wouldn't be stuck right if it were tolerable right off the bat, then they would tolerate it and move through it and wouldn't be such a big problem. 
but it, it's the long-term ones where people get stuck. And I don't know if stuck is the right word, but it, it feels like a good word to use, where they get stuck, where they are confronted with this overwhelming pain or numbness or despair, and yet are unable to confront it. And so that you try and shut it down and it goes away maybe momentarily and then it comes back and then you do something and you distract yourself and it comes back and you just like play this battle with yourself, right? Because it seems like confronting that pain would be too overwhelming, right? And maybe yes. sometimes it is too overwhelming for people. It is, and that's why people get stuck in depression and there are there are, there are, there are, there are traumas that are chronic and that are very, very painful that people never find the ability to uh, to overcome it. But I'm an optimist. I believe there is a there is a hope for everyone, even mm -hmm. the very chronic and long-term uh, depressive clients. It's like that descent requires a lot of strength, a lot of effort. And it's not really that they say the freedom is not free. And it, it is a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, um, Jung's... Uh, sort of a creative process when he fell into rather depressive uh, stage of his life and started in 1912 and went for seven or eight years that he um, that he was working on the red book. Was and that when he, he split with Freud? Yes, he split with Freud and the, you know that was that was his depressive period, right? There was the a culmination point of Freud split with him and it, pretty much rejected him and, and and Jung suddenly was on his own and mm. he needed to start figuring out what he's going to do with his personal and professional um, life. So he started to represent what was happening within him. In uh, it, He started to paint it and he started to write it as a story, as a, he, he was creating a myth. Mm. And he started to have a dialogue with different parts of himself. And by doing that, he became more able to um, uh, to to relate to his to his own emotions, to his mm -hmm. own feelings. He said that if he didn't represent those feelings, or if he didn't find those images hidden in this in those feelings, that they would just destroy him. He would be just fragmented. He would not be able to to work through it. So he had to find images in those feelings. And he had to find... Now, can you pause this one? Yeah. Because I don't remember. I have to see if Jung said he had to find images hitting in the emotions or he had to find emotions hitting in the feelings. I don't want to misquote him. I have it here. I just get it really Yeah, quick. yeah, go for it. Emotion and image. Okay, so I have the whole. Um, I have the whole quote. So if you're ready, I can, you can start recording. I can uh, I can read it to you. Yeah, yeah. I didn't stop. I'll edit it afterwards. Okay, thank you. So, Jung said, 
to the extent that I manage to translate the emotions in the images. That is to say, to find the images which were concealed in the emotions. So he was overwhelmed by different emotions and he found the images and that's what he was actually uh, drawing or painting in, in, in his red book. I was inwardly calmed and reassured. Had I let those images hidden in the emotions, I might have been torn into pieces by them. Mm. There is a chance that I might have succeeded in splitting them off, but in that case, I would inexorably have fallen into a neurosis and so been ultimately destroyed by them anyhow. As a result of my experiment, I learned how helpful it can be from the therapeutic point of view to find the particular images which lie behind emotions. Hmm. So, so that's kind of a Jungian um, uh, contribution to the therapy in a nutshell. Right. So he said, we have to find those, uh, those emotions and we have to experience them. And once we do, we find a way of uh, expressing them and, and holding them, etc. So, but there is no way around it. Are the images the representations of the emotions? Yes, they often, uh, the image and emotion are often connected. Okay. But what happens uh, during the trauma, for example, they get sort of cut in the cut in half. So the, the, the image is there, but there is no emotion attached to it, or the no emotion is experienced to it. So it's just an image. Mm. It would be kind of like a fantasy, what, uh, what uh, Donald Culture said. And emotion can also find a way in the body, and it can be very somatic. And one doesn't know what's happening, right? There's a lot of people who come to therapy in, in the initial stages, and they say, I have panic attack. What's that? I don't know. I almost pass out. I do have a heart attack. My heart is beating. My palms are sweating. My throat is really tight. I have a headache. I, you know, there's all kinds of somatic symptoms with that. I sort of lose a sense of myself. But I don't know what's happening. So something is in the body. Mm. But that something is not being conscious yet. And hopefully we help clients to understand the process of, oh, so this is a real pain. This is something that happened to you and it's operating within your body, but you're not aware of it. Mm. It didn't come from soma to the spirit, to, to the awareness yet. So by relationship, when we spoke about ego having a relationship with the unconscious, is actually ego being able to relate to the image that has an emotion attached to it that is experienced, right. not just really renegated into different parts of the uh, body. And do you think that... Or fantasy. Yeah, because I think that there's a... There's a fascinating relationship between emotion and image, right? And it's very complex and perhaps it's, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, perhaps it's quite different for different people where each person will experience an emotion and images associated with it will differ in varying to varying degrees. Maybe not. Maybe there are certain, well, there's archetypal emotions and images right so fair enough um which are which transcend any individual and are common throughout mm -hmm. 
but maybe there are also some that are very individual to individual experience, which would make sense to me, right? Like a particular trauma, although the emotions that are associated with it might be archetypal emotions, the images that come with it will be very specific to that person. Is, is that correct? I'm not really sure what, uh, what you mean by specific, right? Like, it, 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 let's, let's look at an example, right? Like, okay. so there is an image in a dream that, let's say a client is dreaming that there is a bear running out of the forest and the client is running for the house and enters the house and holds the door and a bear is trying to get in, right? So this is an image. This mm. is an ex sort of an, an experience of the unconscious in the form of image that is the, that is the bear trying to get in and break into the house. And then I ask the client, so what, what do you feel? What's, what, you know, what is your emotion? Well, I feel terrified. I'm, I'm so scared. I'm holding the door and I see the, the bear banging and I, I can hear the bear. So I'm really terrified and I'm holding, holding the door so the bear cannot, um, uh, cannot come in. So this is an experience of something that is unconscious, that client doesn't know what that is yet, right? That could be as a result of trauma. The, the, the patient may have been uh, a victim of physical or sexual trauma, and now it's coming in the form of this, mm. of this bear that is terrifying. So what do you do with that? Like, how do you start working with the client on, on, on this dream? Mm, I see. So I, I guess what I was saying was that like, you know, <clears throat> one client dreams of a bear trying to break into the cabin, another client dreams of being chased by a lion, or something oh, like see. that. So like the, the image is very, is, is specific to the person, even though it's not that specific, but it's like, the underlying, you know, terror and things like that, like that's common. But it manifests slightly Absolutely. differently for each person. Yes. Yeah, I see. So the content is is the same, but the form is different. And that yeah. is absolutely true. I mean, the different clients have a different, let's say they dream about different animals. There could be a lion and could be a bear. And these are very specific. And mm -hmm. these are very specific images that we should pay attention to why there is a why there is a lion and why there is not a bear. Yeah, what, what does it mean? What is the associations with the bear? Because bear is different. Mm -hmm. than lion, right? The lion is sort of a king. The lion is more like a um, more cat, cat-like king, cat-like energy, while bear is more like a mother protector energy. Mm -hmm. And, well, we don't really know why unconscious chooses certain, uh, certain images, but we believe that the dream is the best representation of what's going on. We just don't understand why it's best, but it was chosen for a very specific reason, and we can only get closer to it um, to understand it better, but we would never exhaust the full understanding of it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the images aren't accidental. They have a, they serve a, a very specific purpose for that person about what they represent. Yes, and, and there, is, there is a mystery to it, like why there are certain images why there are repetitive images, why there yeah. certain images come over and over after uh, once he's working on them and trying to understand. Yeah. I, I, for example, have a dream that I go to the city that I could describe 
as if I lived there, as I know that city. And I know the train station. I know when I take a train, what it takes me. And and I never been to that city. It's a it's a dream city. It exists mm. within my own psyche. And my dream maker can always put me back in there, and I'm there. And sometimes I'm there with my mom. Sometimes I'm there with my wife. And uh, sometimes I'm there alone. But the city is still there. Hmm. So what's your understanding of that dream? Well, there are many dreams that come with that city. Oh, but, okay. Uh, that's I, just the back, the context. Yeah, there's just the context. There is always a certain plot and certain certain things happen in the city, but the city looks pretty much the same. Hmm. That's cool. <laughs> there is a tower, and there is the, the stairs that I can walk up to, and I know there is a restaurant, and I, I know there is a sort of um, uh, uh, I can't think of the the uh, the name of it is like the space before the cathedral. Mm. It's the big open space before the cathedral that is like that a square. Is always there. Yeah, the square. Yeah, the cathedral square. Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, I've never heard of anything like that before. Like you have the <laughs> same set <laughs> for many of your dreams. That's very cool. Uh, yeah, and sometimes it starts in a train station, and I and I can choose, or I don't know how to what extent I'm choosing, but sometimes I take a train and I go left. Feels like you're choosing. Sometimes I take a train, I go right. Yeah. Hmm. That's awesome. And then, do you know what lucid dreaming is? I do know, yes. I have had a lucid, lucid dream. Yeah. And I know there are techniques that are actually teaching people to dream lucidly, but I, I don't know much about it. I mean, that is a fascinating yeah. concept. Yeah. I just wonder, like, how that then, bec- what the interplay with the conscious and unconscious is when, so for anyone who doesn't know, like, a lucid dream is where you, it's never happened to me, but supposedly you're sufficiently awake in your dream that you can control it to a certain extent and choose what you want to dream and not dream. Now, what would be really interesting to think about is whether you're really in that state or whether you just think you are. So in in essence, you're dreaming that you have control of this dream and mm-hmm. that you make all of these choices, but really it's still a dream and that's just the dream that you're having is that you get to control your dream in a particular way sure. but really it's yeah, not I understand. it's like a trick by the dream so you're in the dream being tricked yeah and it's like in movie inception that you are in the like second inception. level yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. i wonder i've never thought about it that way but it would be interesting i need to talk to some people who lose a dream um see what they make of that what do you make of that? Do you think that that would be a possibility or does it feel, I've never done it before. So does it feel like you really have full control? When I had the lucid dreams, uh, for example, the one reason I can think of, I was in a really top hill on the high hill mm-hmm. and I looked down and I was terrified. And then I realized I am actually only dreaming. So if I jump, I am. Uh, I'm not going to die. This is going to be process of uh, of actually excitement mm. because I know that I'm dreaming. So nothing's going to happen to me because I'm not physically existing. So then I jump and I spread my hands like wings, and then I fly, hmm. and then I'm yelling, "Wow, this is great!" So I can um, I can interpret it as a as a sort of a being a symbolic dream, like letting me know. You don't have to worry. You can spread the wing and mm. fly. Don't be afraid. Don't hold. Don't let that fear stopping you from flying with your baskets in your 
Yeah. I mean, and I think that's like the perfect representation in terms of like you feel terrified to jump because there's no greater stake than death. And yet you have the conviction that it's okay and that you're just going to do it anyway. And as soon as you take the leap, you soar and you fly and you would never mm-hmm. have been able to do that had you not jumped. Yeah. yeah but also had I not, because some of those dreams can be very real. So you don't, you don't know if actually this is real, right? Like, so if you jump, you die because you, you, you fall on the, on the ground. But in that moment, I had this insight. I said, wait a minute, this is a dream. Mm. This is great. I don't have to be afraid. Hmm. It's fascinating. Um, now, before we, you know, end off, I, I want to talk quickly a little bit about anxiety, right? Because anxiety is also a fascinating concept and it's so prevalent and it's something that everyone experiences, but some people mm-hmm. experience to significantly greater degrees that become debilitating for their life, mm-hmm. right? So we have, we went through depression and trauma and a little bit of addiction in terms of understanding that from a Jungian perspective, mm. what's a sort of high level understanding of anxiety? Mm. Well, that's a topic of itself that we can talk yeah. you know, for days. Yeah. We can just keep talking. Yeah. Well, anxiety has a function just like, um, every experience on of every emotion has a function. So, Anxiety, one function of anxiety is really being able uh, to survive, right? To, to be, it's a protective function. Mm-hmm. If I have an anxiety to go in a, in a forest, there may be, there may be some, some bees behind the trees eating. So I, it's good that I have anxiety because I'm in a heightened level of consciousness and I'm just paying more attention to it. So that may yeah. help me save my life. If I have an anxiety, what's going to happen? Uh, when winter comes, well, I better start, you know, stocking my crops and, you know, making sure that I, that I'm prepared for the winter because I might not survive if I don't have this anxiety uh, about the future. So there is every emotional experience can be sort of magnified and it can become neurotic in, in us. Mm-hmm. Depression is also, it can be very creative and depression can be very informative and can be sort of a check engine, uh, light for us but it can become debilitating and over consuming yeah so i try to understand anxiety as something when the client comes with a high anxiety what is happening what what is this all about what is this information that your body is giving you that we need to understand mm-hmm. and that's, that's sort of the beginning of the analysis right like when you pay attention to your anxiety, you find out there is feeling behind that. There is an emotion is not just an anxiety itself, but it becomes more um, diverse in a way in, in terms of what, what's happening yeah. in your body. But also there is a function that is attached to some kind of a goal that we have in our lives. Hmm. I'm anxious. I can't talk to people when I go in a public and I have a high social anxiety and I'm just sitting there like a ball and I'm really afraid to talk to someone, right? So this anxiety is preventing me from, from doing something. I'm overwhelmed and that is an unconscious already that is giving me this message. So this is, 
activated unconscious in the form of anxiety. Hmm. So you work with anxiety as you work with any other um, contents. As you find out what function it serves. You find out what, what function it serves and you find out how, what's behind it, what's more to it. What are mm-hmm. other experiences that you can have once you get closer to it? Again, you translate them into images and you start looking at them and you find out what's attached to that anxiety in terms of your history. Yeah. And you work with it in the moment. I mean, that's some that's something what we didn't even touch upon is, is the paper being in the moment, the hits and moves, the cosa presenti, mm-hmm. the present moment. How do you deal with anxiety in the very moment that is happening? What does it mean for you or what's in it? Right. It's, it's, it's sort of the, the analytical goal. Hmm. And so it's not the past where it's coming from. Yeah. It's not what it, it's about to where it's going, where, where it tends to go. But really the most important part is like what's happening right now. Right. And, and looking at why it's happening right now and what can it do you look at what can be done about it or it is the process of understanding its you know um etiology for lack of a better word really restorative in and of itself because if you understand where it's coming from and what function it serves then it makes a lot more sense and then it becomes a lot easier to deal with well, that's that's one aspect of uh, i guess for for dealing with anxiety yeah uh, it's understanding it like right like you understand the cause what happened right i was bullied at the school and that's why i have a, a you know social anxiety now but that really doesn't help you that much as having this kind of a, a, a rational understanding of the past mm-hmm. which is for some clients is very important to go through this stage because Many of clients don't even have this connection. They, they just don't have the memory of the traumatic event. Mm. So helping to understand that's where it's coming from, it's a first and very necessary step. But really the goal lies into working with that feeling now, bringing it into the present. Because the past, in unconscious, there is no really a past. Mm. So everything is kind of right now. So when you re-experience something, it's like you were thrown back 20 years ago. You can have the grief, you can have the anxiety or fear, just like you experienced in during the traumatic event. Mm-hmm. So it's recorded in your body and that is just replayed to you. And your task is, how do I deal with this now versus how I dealt with it then? Then I just escape into fantasy or I dissociate it or yeah. I just sort of threw it in my body. But now I have hopefully better capacity with the help of the therapist to relate to it and to have this kind of enlarged consciousness that can be strong enough or flexible enough to hold it, to grieve it, to experience the pain of it, and to make it part of my um, my life and be able to say, well, you know, I now can live with my pain Mm-hmm. And there is something that I can actually draw from it. Right, to integrate it. Yeah. You know, people who have a lot of pain in their lives, they're great artists. They, they enrich the mankind. They, 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 they bring some music, poetry, or anything. It's a, 
Hmm. The flip side of it is really something that is rich and and and, yeah. and, and gifting. Creative. Yeah. That's true. And do you find that, you know, with clients and things like that, that the process of acceptance in and of itself transforms the intensity of it? Well, acceptance is acceptance itself. It's a process of being able to to hold it. Right? Acceptance is not just a decision. I'm accepting. No, yeah. right? the, the acceptance. It's a process. And a real acceptance. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I definitely think that you know accepting the pain. It's it also also means working on that pain. Mm-hmm. And it transmutes. enlarges the personality uh, yeah and that's what unconscious comes in with like with these mysterious powers i often see that with people for example who had lost their shock right like their relative died and they're really sad about it and shocked and to lose the meaning of life so what's the point i i you know i lost my father and now he's gone i just loved him so much and i you know what can I do with my life now? And then the father comes back in dreams, for mm. example, and they are talking to the father. They can see a smell or experience the father's energy. And then they feel like, wow, something happened. I can now accept the loss better, right? Like this is a kind of a spiritual shift that happens. And after a while, it doesn't have to be the dream. It could be just being able to recollect the energy of the father or the mother or sister or whoever that is and being able to, what do they evoke in me and can I can I relate to it and can I live with it? Can mm-hmm. I just not be crushed by it and just, you know, feel so, you know, broken into pieces? But can I now hold the pain and feel it and honor it in the same time and take the best of it, right? And have a have my sister giving me advice for what should I do in my life now. Yeah. It, and it, it's interesting how pain can be spiritual. Right? Just the sense mm-hmm. of like, there there is something sacred about it. I mean, it's not great, but uh, mm-hmm. there does seem to be something like deeply spiritual. And like what comes to mind is like a funeral, right? And how the grieving process, it, it is it, 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 it's, it is a spiritual experience. It's not a pleasant one, but it, it's powerful and transformative. And hmm. what, what's your sense of that? Hmm. Well, I think the pain is, and suffering is essential to the existence of humans. Mm. Uh, perhaps all living creatures. Um, it being said, there is there is no growing without tears. There is no individuation without the pain, and we all will sooner or later experience something very painful and devastating in our lives. Mm-hmm. It's just the nature of our existence, and all religions take the pain and suffering into account as a very important or as i should say essential part of uh, of spirituality yeah uh, you know uh, 
Rudolf Otto, in his work, the idea of the holy, das Heilige, he said that experience of the holy, it's terrifying and fascinating at the same time. It's the mystery of something so scary and painful and terrible on one hand and something very attractive and beautiful on the other. Yeah. And these are two parts of the whole, and that's how the whole is being experienced. Hmm. It's the living God that looks at you and you feel both of, both of them and you feel the humility, fear and trembling and fascination and love and peace at the same time. Yeah. Awe and terror, right? Yeah. Simultaneously. And Jung brought, yeah. And Jung brought his idea and he said, well, this every archetypal experience is like that. Mm. When you are facing archetype, you're actually facing the whole. Right. So these are enormous energies. And when you come in terms with them, then you hopefully become a whole being that can live in the midst of those opposites and being able to juggle them and being able to appreciate something very painful and something yeah. very beautiful. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. Um, I mean, Jung's brilliant, right? As you well know. <laughs> um, anyway, Vlado, listen, that's our time for today. But thank you so much for being here again. It's always such a pleasure speaking with you. Um, is there anything you would like to tell people about or promote? I'll put links in the description. I, I mean, I don't really have anything else. Okay. To people just uh, <laughs> live life. Life is a yeah. Life is a mystery, and it's a it's it's a it's a beautiful mystery. Yeah, it's a blessing. Um, well, thank you again, and uh, I look forward to speaking with with you again soon. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Shane, and have a have a good day. Thanks you as well. <laughs>